Good morning. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 21. I was talking to a friend this morning who was telling me about a task that uh, he had been assigned that strikes me as as an extremely significant assignment, one which he also recognizes the, uh, the value of. And uh, he was just asking for uh, prayer, and I was, uh, as we were talking, I was reminded of, a, of an exchange between the, the little hobbit, Frodo, and Gandalf, the, uh, the wizard. Frodo had the assignment to uh, go to the mountains of Mordred and retrieve the, lo- the uh, ring, and he, he was... Uh, understandably nervous about that uh, assignment. And he said to Gandalf, why was I born at a time like this? And Gandalf very knowingly said to him, you were born for a time like this. I think we've seen from Elijah's life how very often, as Leanne was telling us, God has a stand and wait. And uh, we're like the, the tools that my father used to have over his workbench. He used to paint the, the picture of the tool behind its place, and every tool had to go in that, in that spot. And uh, often that tool would hang on the wall for months or years. But then he would need that tool for that special task, and he would take it down and use it. And he always got uh, real upset with us if we didn't put his tool back. Uh, and... Uh, Again, I think that's what we've seen from Elijah's life. You know, when you look at his life in the overall picture, his ministry lasted three days. There was that first day when he walked into Ahab's court and confronted him with his sin. There was the day on Mount Carmel, and then there's the day that we want to look at this morning when he rebuked Ahab. And the rest of the time, he was hidden away. For three and a half years at at one point, for five to six years at another point, not set aside, just hidden away and shaped and formed and prepared, made ready for that day that God could take him off the shelf and put him to use. And what we see this morning is another example of, of God's putting his man or his woman into a particular place at a particular time to do a particular thing that God wants done. Let's begin reading with verse 1 of chapter 21. It came about after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. And Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is close beside my house. And I'll give you a better vineyard than it in its place, if you like. I'll give you the price of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. So Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I'll not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned his face and uh, turned away his face and ate no food. Poor uh, childish, fiendish man. They, uh, the text begins with, uh, with this introduction. It came about after these things. The things uh, that the author is referring to is the route of the Syrians that's described in chapter uh, 20. 
a very small Israelite army surprised the Syrian army, uh, toasting their victory prematurely, and uh, routed them, uh, chased them across the Jordan River. But it was an incomplete victory because of Ahab's disobedience, and the prophet rebuked uh, Ahab, and he went into a pout, and like so many people whose egos are deflated by rebuke, he had to have a petty victory to compensate, and... Uh, when he got back to Jezreel, he happened, his eye happened to fall on Naboth's vineyard, and he, and he wanted it. He coveted it. Coveted it. Archaeologists digging in Samaria have discovered that Ahab was quite a wine connoisseur. He not only had numerous vineyards, but he had, uh, he had his different vintages stored away in casks, and they're, they're labeled uh, uh, wine from the hill of the Tell, for example, it'll say. And uh, these apparently he had extensive holdings, and, and uh, he raised, uh, raised grapes, and he produced wine for himself. But he didn't want this particular vineyard for, uh, for wine production. He, he, wanted a, he wanted a vegetable garden, and uh, he, he went to talk to Naboth. Now, most Oriental kings in those days would have simply conscripted uh, the vineyard, confiscated it, but in Israel... Every, every man had his own possession. He had the right to his own personal piece of property, and no one could take that away from him. Uh, if it was ever sold, it reverted back to the family after 50 years. It was his own piece of land. And Ahab knew that he could not uh, confiscate uh, Naboth's land, and so he asked him, if he would sell it, or he said, I'll swap for another piece of property. And Naboth said, no, no, it's my, it's my inheritance from my forefathers. I'm not going to give that up. And uh, Ahab went into a funk. He went home and took to his bed, turned his face to the wall, and, and uh, uh, began to pout. And the reason I say he's both childish and fiendish is because I think Ahab knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that he would bring Jezebel into play. She was a woman of determination and means, as he well knew, and furthermore, she was just plain mean, and uh, she would uh, get him what he wanted, and sure enough, she came through. Verse, verse 5, Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said, what is this, that your spirit is sullen and you're not eating food? So he said to her, I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, and he said to him, give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I'll give you a vineyard in its place. He said, I was perfectly fair with Naboth, and but he said to me, I'm not going to give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you, and, and the emphasis here on the text is on the pronoun, it doubles up the pronoun, do you now reign in Israel? Well, what is this? Are you, are you king or not? Are you a man or a mouse? Come on, squeak up. <laughs> and uh, she says, uh, rise, eat bread, let your heart be joyful. I'll get that measly little vineyard for you. And uh, sure enough, she did. She wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Now, she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men. The word for worthless here is is a Hebrew idiom, sons of Belial, that just means uh, hoodlums, hoods, goons. 
in uh, seat two, uh, two of these men before him and let them testify against him, saying, you cursed God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. She had it all uh, set up. And the, uh, the hereditary aristocracy in the city, the ones that are described here as nobles and the elders, the church fathers, had already sold out to Jezebel. They were scared to death of her. So they went out and suborned the testimony of, of a couple of uh, Jezebel's thugs. And uh, they accused Naboth of insurrection and uh, uh, sacrilege. And uh, he was taken out and, and stoned to death. And then uh, they sent word to Jezebel in verse 14 saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And, and it came about when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but literally he has died. She obscures the fact that he was judicially murdered. She simply says he, he has died. Now, go take possession of your property. Apparently, uh, in those days, property that was confiscated in this way reverted to the crown. And so uh, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. I have no idea what was going through uh, Ahab's mind, but Ahab knew an enormous amount of truth, and I'm sure he must have been struggling with his conscience. He knew exactly what he had done. Conscience is that uh, still small voice within us that tells us that we have violated the will of God. And uh, Ahab knew. Someone has said that we usually go two out of three falls with our conscience. But, uh, and I'm sure that's what Ahab was, was doing. He was trying to justify his behavior in, in various ways. But down inside, he knew. And God's next step was to incarnate Ahab's conscience in the person of a friend. That's often what God does. You know, we all have our ways of justifying sin, our loopholes and fudge factors. And, and sin sometimes is so subtle we can't recognize it. Sometimes the basis on which our conscience acts is off. We don't know all the truth and we're able to defend and protect ourselves. And God in his grace will raise up some incarnation of that conscience, some friend who loves us enough, who cares enough to confront, and who will say to us, you have sinned. And that's, uh, that's the role that Elijah played. Verse 17, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite. It had been five to six years before the word of the Lord had come to this uh, prophet. He was standing and waiting for this moment. And now God called him out of retirement to confront Ahab again. And he says to Elijah, verse 18, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth, that would be in Jezreel, where he has gone down to take possession of it. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, You murdered and took possession. Puts his finger squarely on the issue, as Nathan did when he confronted David with his sin. You're the man, he said. You are responsible. The word he uses for murdered here is the word that's used in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. Ahab may have justified these proceedings uh, because they were, to some extent, legal. It's a judicial death 
uh, judicial transaction. But uh, he knew, he knew he was, he was responsible. And Ahab had enough courage to speak directly to that issue. You just say to him, or pardon me, Elijah, had enough courage to speak directly to that issue. Thus says the Lord, you have murdered and taken possession. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs shall lick up your blood, even yours. And Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my friend? And he answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Ahab had sold out. He had basically sold out not only to evil, but to the evil one. I'm sure you're familiar with, with uh, Goutet's story of uh, Faust. There's a man who, for a few years of pleasure, sold out to, to Satan, sold his, sold his soul. And you know the story, how his life was increasingly diminished by that transaction. Satan is a terrible taskmaster. He, he lies to us. He tells us that uh, we'll have years of pleasure, but uh, it never works out that way. Sin always has devastating effects on us. Sin is suicidal. It erodes away our sense of self-confidence. Life becomes more and more empty and boring and senseless, and we enter into a kind of living death where nothing matters after a while. And uh, that's what Ahab done. He, he, had, he had sold out. He had prostituted himself for a, a piece of land. And uh, Elijah wants him to understand the enormity of, of, that, uh, of that sellout. Um, but when he confronts Ahab, Ahab considers him his, his enemy. And I, I was struck as I uh, read through this passage again in verse 20 with that phrase. Ahab said to Elijah, Have, have you found me, O my enemy? When in effect, uh, the, Ahab's terrible foe was Jezebel. Jezebel was his enemy. Ahab, uh, Elijah was the best friend that Ahab ever had because he loved him enough to tell him the truth. See, a friend will confront. A friend will lay his or her reputation on the line. A friend will, as Ambrose said, stab you in the front. The, friends care, see. They, they, they will do whatever they have to salvage you because they realize that sin persisted in is suicidal. Now, there are those sins that we venture into and fall into, which we repent of and deal with. And we're not talking about that kind of sin here, but sin that's persisted in. The sin that we will not let go of. The sin that has its grip on us, always enslaves us. As Jesus put it in, in the Gospel of John when you begin to sin, you become the slave of sin. As Augustine said, sin is the punishment for sin. God lets us go, and we go deeper and deeper into sin, and, and we lose utter control, and we enter into that living, living death that I spoke of a moment ago. And, and if we really care about someone who's living, in, in, you know, their, their hearts are hardened and they're living in sin, we will we'll go after them. We'll rescue them. We'll speak to that issue, even though our friendship uh, is at stake. I ran across something that uh, uh, Carl, uh, uh, Charles Finney said years ago. If you see your neighbor's sin and you pass by 
and neglect to reprove him, it is just as cruel as if you should see his house on fire and not warn him. Now, that's not, that effort is not appreciated by our world. If you, if you care enough to confront someone over their sin, you'll be considered intrusive and evasive and uh, invasive and, and meddlesome. Because the, the axiom by which the world lives is live and let live. But uh, there's, there's no life in, in, that, in that creed. That, that's what kills people, you see. But if you go after someone, they're going to they're gonna think that, uh, that you're violating that person's rights. Uh, Tim Stafford recently wrote an article in Christianity Today in which he pointed out the only sin of which the world is intolerant today is intolerance. They'll tolerate anything and everything, but the one thing that will, will arouse the wrath of society around us is if you... If you don't tolerate sin in a friend's life, then you step into that individual's life in order to help them and correct them. Now, how we do what we do is very important. We should never be harsh, judgmental, and self-righteous. And we should never step into anyone's life in this way unless the word of the Lord comes to us. Just because you see someone sinning doesn't mean that you need to, you need to take, this, uh, take this step. Uh, if you see someone living in, in, in sin, the thing to do is to begin to pray for that individual and, and wait until the Lord says that it's your task to speak to them, you see. show you an interesting verse. Turn to the, the book of Galatians in the New Testament. Galatians 6. Verse 1. Brothers, he says, if a man is caught in any... Trespass. The word means to fall out of rank. It, it has to do with a violation, a clear violation of God's will. We don't have any business speaking to people about things that just annoy us. We're talking about clearly revealed violations of God's will. Someone is doing something, and Scripture speaks directly to and against. That's, that's the issue that we need to address. If a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Now, by spiritual, he doesn't have in mind some special class of people who are above it all and who don't sin and who have it all together. He's just talking about the need to be walking in the Spirit, walking in dependence upon the Spirit of Christ. Chapter 5 spells out what that means. You who are spiritual, he says, restore such a one. It's a word that Paul borrowed, must have borrowed from Luke. It's a medical term. It comes right out of a medical dictionary. It's used of setting bones. An orthopedic surgeon you know, takes, takes a, a broken bone and you know, it may cause some pain, but he, he resets it. He uses gentle hands. You know, he, he doesn't force the bone gently puts it back together again. That's the picture that Paul is describing here. Skillful surgeon taking a, a joint that's out of joint or a bone that's broken and, and deftly and gently putting it, putting it back into, into place. Do so, he says, in the spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. That word tempted is a pregnant expression. Tempted and fall. That's what he has in mind. What he's saying is that the next time around, you may be the one with the broken leg, and the man whose leg or woman whose leg you're setting 
maybe doing that for you. We always have to come, not in a sense that we're above it all, not self-righteously, not in a censorious, harsh, judgmental way, but rather meekly and humbly out of an awareness of our own sin. But nevertheless, we must do this. We don't have any option. We're talking about a rescue operation here. Let me remind you of the analogy that Jesus used. This is the one that always comes to mind when I think about about discipline. Uh, it's the upper room. Uh, this is Jesus' last opportunity to minister to the disciples. As Howard Hendricks always used to say, last words or lasting words. This is a very this is a significant time. You would expect significant words to come out of Jesus' mouth. You would expect the sermon in the upper room. Instead, he strips off his outer garments and he girds himself with a towel. He gets a bowl and a bar of soap and he gets down on his knees and crawls around and starts washing the disciples' feet. And he comes to Peter and Peter says, you know, you're going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. Peter said, then wash me all over. And Jesus said, you don't need to be washed all over. You're clean. You're sanctified. You just need to have your feet washed. And he completes the circle and uh, even washes Judas' feet. And then, then he comes back and puts the bowl down. He puts his outer garment back on. He says, do you know what I've done to you? That's Jesus' way of asking very simple questions that require a lot of, a lot of thought. Do you know what I've done to you? Sure, they say, you washed our feet. No, he says, you think about it. What have I done to you? Now, what I have done to you, you should do to others. And I say, what is this, another rite? You know, another ceremony in the church, foot washing? And there, and there are a lot of churches that, that, that carry out that, that act. It's a good thing to do. But there's a far greater significance. What Jesus is talking about is cleansing one another's feet of defilement. If you know Jesus, if you've come into relationship with God through him, then you're clean all over. You're forgiven. But you and I, as we walk through the, through the world, pick up defilement, our feet get dirty, and uh, we begin to reflect the attitudes and actions of the world, and someone needs to sit us down and put our feet in a nice warm bowl of water, you know, not scalding water and not uh, freezing water, but a nice, warm, comfortable bowl of water, and wash our feet with the Word of God. It's a wonderful picture. And Jesus did not leave us an option. He said, as I have done this to you, so you must do to others. It's not optional. It's a requirement. Now, you and I shrink from that because it, it doesn't always work out the way we, uh, we think it should. Uh, there's a proverb, Proverbs 28, 23, that says, uh, when you rebuke a, a brother or a sister, you afterward find more favor. Sometimes uh, people get defensive and angry and they may cut you off and they may not want to talk to you on the telephone and they may not receive your letters and they may cross the street when, you, when they see you. But it may be that that gentle rebuke will find its target and they'll begin to respond. It may take time. That's what he's saying. But you see, it's a matter of laying our friendship on the line. It's going after a drowning person. They may fight you off. They may inflict uh, some damage on you, you know, in, in their own attempts to save themselves. But if we really love them, 
will go after them. Not everybody that's sinning. But as you begin to pray about those around you that you see in the grip of sin, and the word of the Lord comes to you to go after them, and go after them, no matter what the consequences are. Now, uh, let's turn back to First um, Kings again. And I want to show you the effect that uh, Elijah's rebuke had on Ahab, verse 27. It came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted, and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I'll not bring evil in his days, but I'll bring evil upon his house in his son's days. Now he's not here saying that his sons were punished for Ahab's disobedience. If you know anything about the history of this family, his son uh, went to his death calling on Beelzebub, the lord of the flies, and he died of a disease that's suspiciously like venereal disease. He had his own wickedness to deal with. It's not what God is talking about. He averted the judgment on Ahab because he did repent. That's the grace of God. So he doesn't make any difference how far your brother or sister has gone. He can be retrieved, reclaimed, redeemed, and God will, will draw that person back by, by his grace. But apparently Ahab's uh, humbling was um, short-term, fairly shallow, you turn on to chapter 22, and I don't really have time to read this uh, story to you. I'll just tell it to you. It's, um, it, it, it's a story that has a lot of humor in it, but as you get toward the end, it becomes downright horrific. I just read a Ruth Rendell book just this last week that was like that. It was right at the end, it just made you shudder. And, and that's what this story does to you. Let me just tell you what happened. Ahab was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Jehoshaphat was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. They were in-laws. Ahab's daughter, uh, Athaliah, who was just as mean as her mother, uh, Ahab had married her off to Jehoram, who was the son of Jehoshaphat. She later actually became a the queen uh, mother, and then the the ruler of the southern kingdom of Judah for a time. That's another story. Anyway, they were in-laws. So they, they would get together from time to time, and uh, apparently Jehoshaphat came up to visit the family, and they had all the all the, the gang there. And, and in the course of, uh, of their meeting, Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, uh, I think we should go to get together, get our armies together, and go to battle, go to war against Syria, because they hold the city of Ramoth-Gilead as part of our possession. Now, Jehoshaphat well knew Ahab's, uh, the intent of Ahab's heart. Ahab had signed a treaty with Ben-Hadad, who was the king of Syria, a peace treaty, and he had no business going to war with that man. So Jehoshaphat very wisely says to Ahab, uh, well, I think we ought to inquire of the Lord here about this. So Ahab says, all right. So he trots out all of his prophets, 400 of them, and they all say, go for it. And Jehoshaphat says, now wait a minute. Is there a prophet of the Lord here? 
Ahab says, uh, yes, uh-huh, there, there's one. His name is Micaiah, but I don't like him because he never says anything good. The point being, he never said what Ahab wanted him to say. And at the moment, he was on bread and water in the, in the, in the dungeon under the palace. So Joshua says, literally, you don't say. Let's uh, hear from this uh, gentleman. So they went down to the dungeon, pulled him out of the dungeon, brought him up to the uh, up to this assemblage. Here, here were the kings of Israel and Judah and the court, and they were all in their regalia. And on the way up, the guard says to Micaiah, don't make any waves. Don't say anything that will upset the king. Micaiah looks at him and says, I'm going to say exactly what God says to me. So they walk into the courtroom, and uh, Ahab says, uh, Tell me, should we go to battle against Ramoth Gilead? Micaiah says, go for it. Ahab says, now wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What are, you, what are you really saying? And this wonderful old prophet broke into, into poetry. Let me read it to you. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. In other words, uh, Ahab, yeah, uh, go, go to battle against Ramoth Gilead, but you're not coming back. And Ahab said, uh, put this man in the dungeon and keep him on bread and water and I'll deal with him when I get back. And Micaiah said, if you get back. Ahab couldn't get those words out of his mind, and as they were riding off to the battle, he and Jehoshaphat, he says to Jehoshaphat, you, 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 you dress like a king, I'm going to dress like a common soldier. Now why Jehoshaphat would fall for that one, I don't know, but uh, he did. So the battle is joined, Jehoshaphat's up on top of a hill in his chariot, two charioteers with him, and he's dressed like a king. Ahab's down in the, in the ranks, dressed like a common soldier. Then Hadad, the king of Syria, says to his soldiers, just go after Ahab. I'm tired of this guy's treachery, his perfidy. Let, let, go after him. And so uh, they did, and they mistook Jehoshaphat for Ahab, and they started going after Ahab, or after Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat's charioteer lashes the horses, and they're chasing him across the field of battle, and Jehoshaphat turns around and says, hey, wait, King's Axe, King's Axe. I'm not the king of Israel. I'm the king of Judah. So they left off following him. We pick up the story in verse 34. Now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. That's Ahab. And what they used to do in those days is just loft arrows in the air, just you know, just fire a volley of arrows straight up into the air, hoping that they'd come down and strike someone down. And some anonymous soldier, Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian, said that it was Naaman who uh, later achieved the rank of an officer in the Syrian army, and probably because of this, this shot. But he contracted leprosy, and he's the one that Elisha cured of leprosy. We don't know. That's, that's traditionally it was named. Some anonymous soldier. <laughs> caught Ahab right in the gap between 
his chest plate, the metal or a leather chest plate that came down to the abdomen, then a skirt below that to protect their lower abdomen, right in the hinge, little tiny gap. We say, man, what a lucky shot. <laughs> no luck about it. As I've said so many times, there are no maverick molecules. Nothing happens by chance. That was God's justice finding Ahab out. He said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and and take me out of the field, for I am severely wounded. And the battle raged that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot in front of the Syrians, and he died that evening, and the blood from the wound, wound ran into the bottom of the chariot. Then a cry passed throughout the army close to the sunset, saying, Every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And as Elijah had predicted, those words that we read back in chapter 21, verse 9, verse 19, they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood while the harlots bathed themselves according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke. Uh, apparently, uh, Jezebel had built some sacred fish ponds there that were a part of their worship of Dagon and Baal. And the prostitutes, the temple prostitutes, washed themselves there. And sure enough, as Elijah had predicted, the, bloods, the, the dogs licked up Ahab's blood there. And... And I say, though the mills of God's justice grind slowly, they do grind exceedingly fine. See, that's what sin does to us. That's why it's so terrible. The terrible thing is not the rebuke that's rendered to someone that's in sin. It's the sin itself. It's suicidal. It'll kill you. It'll kill me. And that's why if we really care about people, we'll confront them. With, with their sin, even though it may cost our friendship, even though it may cost the understanding of the world around us. We will do it. We will do it gently. We will do it lovingly. But we, we must do it. We don't have any option. And I would say this, that if you or I are in the place of the one being rebuked, we need to we need to take these words very seriously. Perhaps someone is appealing to you now. Perhaps it's your mate. Perhaps it's your, your parent or your child or some other friend. I would appeal to you to listen. Uh, I've, I've been reading F.B. Meyer's commentary uh, uh, on Elijah recently, and I want to quote a statement from that commentary. He says, with reference to this passage, Do not turn from the surgeon's knife, or the lighthouse gleam, or the red warning light as the deep bang of the hound, as if those who speak to you are your foes. It is you that are wrong, not they. Turn ye, turn ye, for why will ye die? Let's pray.